Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what beautiful words that we just sang together, magnifying the person and the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that we are in union with him, that our greatest identity marker um, is Christ and what he has done, and that our lives are to be lived here on this earth with a sense of purpose to exalt and elevate his great name. Father, help us to do that even now as we expound at your word and hear it and seek to apply it to our lives. I pray that the response in the hearts of your people would be obedience, loving obedience, grateful obedience, because of the work of grace that you've done in each of our lives. In the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was sitting uh, in the back uh, a little while ago, um, just listening to some of the words uh, in the songs that our worship team led us uh, in this morning, and just so, so grateful. You know, I have a lot of pastor friends um, all over the country and, and other parts of the world, and I want you to know that we need to be giving thanks to the Lord for the praise team that we have. Amen? Yeah. They do a wonderful job, and it's not a given that you're going to have a worship team or a worship leader that's going to pick uh, content that is gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, like our team does. And so I want you to make sure that you, you uh, say a prayer for them every Sunday, and then when you think about it throughout the week, that they would continue to do that for the glory of Christ, because it is a high responsibility to be able to do that. And, and I hope that when we sing some of these songs, that you really spend time pondering and reflecting upon what we're singing. Um, it's very easy to go through the motions on Sunday mornings and to just sort of come in and out and not really think about the, the words that we are um, singing about the person and work of Jesus. Uh, for example, did you notice these words? He took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden of Calvary and suffered and died alone. That's speaking about substitutionary atonement. That Jesus went to the cross in our place to pay for our sins. He took upon the burden of our sin. He absorbed the punishment that we deserved. Jesus was broken on the cross so that we would be made whole. Then there are these words, Jesus Messiah, name above all names. The rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven. And then it goes on to say, Jesus, Lord of all. A beautiful word, rescue for sinners. Jesus rescued us from the power and dominion of sin. He's the ransom from heaven. He, he um, bought us out of the marketplace of slavery to sin, and he made us his very own, and he is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. And you know what? The glorious, beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, those songs, I think, highlight the fact that the gospel is about restoration, isn't it? We are restored to a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Why, beloved? Because Jesus Christ has dealt definitively with our sin on the cross. Nothing that you do on this earth can ever change that. Nothing. We've been restored to a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the other beautiful element of this gospel restoration that I think we often miss. And it is this, that it is the same gospel that motivates you and I to practice loving restoration in the church with one another. 
that now as children of God, we are to be instruments by God's grace of change in the lives of other people. In other words, that, that glorious gospel by which God restores us to himself through faith in Jesus Christ is now to flesh itself out in the way that we interact with one another and the way that we are there for one another in the greatest, hardest moments of life when there are sin struggles in each of our lives. I submit to you that for me, that's really easy to do, to come alongside of other people and be about loving restoration when people are wired like me that I'm coming alongside of. When maybe things are easy, um, things are pretty comfortable, not so easy, in fact, quite hard and painful when someone else is um, in a messy situation. When people's lives are they're going through difficult trials, when they're struggling with sin, that is when it's very difficult, isn't it, to come alongside of others and be about loving restoration. And as we saw last week and began to reflect and ponder, struggles with sin in the church are real, aren't they? We are all broken sinners. None of us have arrived. None of us are flawless. All of us are in process. That's what progressive sanctification means. That we are in a, in a process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. None of us sitting in here are perfect. None of us are. And so in this process, we need help, don't we? Not only to engage um, one another, but also to do so in love as we address struggles and sins in one another's lives. We need help to do this. And so to help us with this, I began calling your attention last week to four elements of loving restoration in the church. Loving restoration in the church. And I encouraged you to view these from the framework of the church as God's spiritual family. God's spiritual family. That's a helpful framework for us, isn't it? The church as family. You know, when I think about my, my precious little family, my wife and my kids, and my desire in everything that I do is to be helpful, not hurtful. To be constructive, not destructive. To be loving, not hateful. And I think that in the same way that we are that way with our physical families and our motivation is, is love for them, not hate for them, right? That it should be the same way as far as it goes with the spiritual family in the church of God. And so these are, it's very important for us to view these through the framework of the church as family. And so last week we said, number one, that we must think rightly about the purpose of church restoration, we must think rightly about the purpose of, rest, of church restoration. And we saw this, that there's this fourfold purpose, a fourfold purpose for why we ought to be about church restoration. It's for God's glory. It's for the protection and purity of the church. It's for evangelistic witness. And it's for the good of the sinning Christian. It's a fourfold purpose for why we engage in loving restoration in the church. And we highlighted the fact that it's restorative in nature. That our aim is to restore to full spiritual health. When we engage with somebody who is struggling with sin, we want to see them not only just turn from their sin, but also be restored so that they're reminded of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, His person and His sufficient sacrifice on their behalf, so that they are fully effective in ministry once again. It's restorative in nature. Our engaging of one another in this issue of church discipline, okay? Now, the second element we want to see this morning um, centers around the word people. 
Secondly, we must remember the people of church restoration. We must remember the people of church restoration. And I want you to turn back again to our familiar passage, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Question for you. Who is to participate in church restoration? Who is to do so? Some people honestly answer, well, the, the pastors and elders of the church. Those who have an official title that points to their knowledge and perhaps their spiritual maturity. Others say, well, those who like to get dirty with people's business, right? Because if we're honest with that, some people just like to get into messy situations. So those people should be addressing others as far as their sin goes. Others very honestly say, well, the godly people in the church, those who have it all together, those who have a certain level of maturity in their lives. And so what's the right answer? What's the right answer? Who is to participate in church restoration? And here in chapter 6 of Galatians, we find the answer, don't we? Notice what Paul says, Brethren, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted Please note that Paul addresses all Christians here, all of his brethren, he calls them. There again is the framework of family, brothers and sisters, brethren, all Christians he addresses. But then he gets even more precise, doesn't he? He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And the question then becomes, who are the spiritual that Paul is addressing and exhorting in verse 1? Who are these individuals? Are they super or elite Christians in the church? Are they people who have reached a certain level of perfection or spiritual maturity in the church? Again, is it the, the leaders of the church with the official title of pastors, elders, or overseers? Who are the spiritual here? Because that's an important um, question for us to answer, right? If we're to engage in this type of ministry. And I think the context provides for us who the spiritual are, if you look back with me in chapter 5 of Galatians in verse 16. Notice what Paul says. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul says, follow the Spirit, live by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells every Christian, everyone who's professed faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God indwells you. He says, live or walk by that Spirit. Submit yourself to that Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You see, with every single one of us as Christians, there is an ongoing battle, isn't there, between the Spirit of God that dwells in us, that lives in us, and the flesh. And the flesh here, by the way, in verse 16, is not your physical body. There are certain contexts where the flesh is your physical body, but in this context, the flesh refers to the the Christian life lived apart or independent of the Spirit of God. Not living in dependence upon the Spirit of God leads to fleshly living in our lives. And so notice he describes this ongoing battle in verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these, the Spirit and the flesh, are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul says there's an ongoing battle, Christian, between the Spirit of God seeking to cause you to follow after Him and manifest His fruit and living independent of the Spirit, i.e. according to the flesh. Right? How do you know if you're living according to the flesh? Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, and there's the key, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I.e., if you live comfortably, giving in continually to these deeds of the flesh, you should that you are not truly a believer, a Christian. If you have given into these things, what about the contrast? Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then notice, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, literally follow the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And so I submit to you that from the context that the spiritual in chapter 6 and verse 1 are those who are walking by the Spirit, submitting their lives to the Spirit's leading, who are manifesting or evidencing the fruit of the Spirit of God in their lives. And I think the reason why Paul refers to the spiritual is to caution against Christians running around, simply confronting others on their sin, all the while living a double life themselves, not living in submission to the Spirit of God, and yet calling others to do so. Right? That's why he does this. It's what the Lord Jesus warned about in His Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 3, where He said, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. In other words, how are you going to call someone out on the little twig, splinter in their eye, all the while you have a tree trunk in your eye? How are you going to do that? What's up with that? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. And here it is, you hypocrite. First take the log, the, the speck out of your, your, the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is our Lord saying? Deal with your sin first, and then you can go and address your brother or sister on their particular sin. Reminds me of, of the times that I've flown on a plane. Some of you have done this. And right before you take off, you're giving instructions in case of an emergency, right? And with regards to the oxygen mask, what is the one thing that they tell you to do before you think about helping somebody else to put on their oxygen mask? Put yours on first. If you're passed out, how in the world are you going to help anybody else, right? That's the idea. You put on yours first, and then you're positioned to be able to help others out as well. 
Listen, this is essentially God's way of telling us, make sure you are walking right, you're submitting to my word and to my spirit before you seek to help other people out. And this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, that we have to wait until we're flawless, that we don't have any struggles before we can ever talk to anybody else about their sin. But this is a a charge to live honestly and with integrity before God, genuinely pursuing Jesus, if you're going to call others to do the same. Amen? That's what he's getting at here. To walk by the Spirit ourselves. To make sure that we are pursuing Christ-likeness first and foremost. You see, beloved, there's a, there's a healthy type of introspection that deflates self-exalting pride in our lives. There's an unhealthy type of introspection where you're navel-gazing and you're focusing on your performance so much and on how you're measuring up and all of that and beginning to think that God's favor is upon you based upon your performance. That's an unhealthy, sinful type of introspection that essentially is putting um, your relationship with God in your own hands based upon your performance. Unhealthy introspection. But there's a healthy type of self-examination where we are not comparing ourselves to others, but we are seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And then we are brought very, very low, aren't we? We are humbled. And then that leads to us dealing with others with gentleness. There's a healthy type of introspection that deflates our pride. That's what he's getting at in verse 1. Notice again, he says, Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. See that, see that beautiful word there, looking? See that word there, looking? It's the Greek word skapeo. Skapeo. We get our words microscope, telescope from that particular word. What are those? Those are devices used for observing and examining things, Right? Paul is exhorting these believers, hey, scope out your own heart first. Pay careful attention to yourself. Take a close look within first and foremost. And if you check your heart, you will be prepared to deal with others in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because we recognize, beloved, that we are no better than other people, right? That we are susceptible to sin just like everybody else. That we are weak. That we are needy. That we are vulnerable. That we're not for the grace of God. We could be in the same exact situation, struggling with the exact same sin or greater sins than the person that we are addressing. See, none of us stand on higher ground in this ministry of church restoration. The level is, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so self-examination becomes a safeguard for us to not run around pretending like we're the Holy Spirit in everybody's lives. Like we're the spiritual holiness police. Addressing everybody else, all the while living a double life ourselves. Not pursuing Christ from the heart. And so we must remember that Christians who are submitting themselves to the Spirit of God are the people of loving restoration in the church. And I want you to think about this. You know, we often think about the issue of church discipline in a very formal, structured, public sense as something that the elders get behind this pulpit and publicly do. But listen to me. Really, this type of ongoing ministry is something that should take place naturally and organically among us. Naturally and organically among us. That is, every single one of us who are Christians are called to come alongside of Others, 
to stake our lives besides others. You know, growing up, my, my father taught me how to, how to ensure, plant a tree and ensure that that little tree eventually would grow and be stable and founded well upon that ground and then become very fruitful. And he taught me to, to, to tie a stick, or a stake he called it, to that particular little tree. To tie it with some kind of a rope or whatever. To hold that little tree up for a time so that eventually that tree grows up, is stable enough, and begins to produce the fruit that it needs to produce. That's a beautiful picture of what we are to do in the spiritual realm in the church, beloved. We are to stake ourselves next to other people so that they are maturing and growing and bearing fruit for Jesus Christ themselves. So who are you staking yourself next to? Who are you, whose burdens are you helping carry? Who are you supporting in the Christian life? Who is supporting you? Who is supporting you? Someone says, well, I don't see myself that way, Pastor. I feel like I'm ill-equipped and incompetent to do this kind of a thing. Let me read to you Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. Ready? Romans 15 verse 14. Paul writing to his brethren, Roman believers says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and listen to this, and able also to admonish one another. That word, admonish there in Romans 15, 14, translates the Greek word nutheteo. Nutheteo, which means to put or place in the mind of someone. To put or place truth in the mind of someone. And depending on context, it's sometimes translated encourage, other times instruct, and other times more intensified as exhort, admonish, or correct. And Paul the Apostle is saying, I'm reminding you of certain things as an apostle, but listen to me, you yourselves are equipped and responsible to be continually coming alongside of one another to admonish one another. It's your job, Christian, to do that with other members of the body of Christ. Now listen to me. You know what this requires of us as Christians? That we would not be disengaged with the body of Christ, but actively engaged, highly committed participants in the body of Christ, committed to life on life discipleship. What is discipleship? Deliberate relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of the local church. That's discipleship. The cultivating of deliberate, purposeful relationships for the purpose of growth in Jesus in the context of the local church. Deliberate discipleship requires, because you're dealing with people, commitment, doesn't it? It requires you to spend time with others. It requires that you sacrifice and serve other people. It requires that you be actively engaged in other people's lives, in life-on-life relationships. Why? So that when you come alongside of other people to nutheteo them, to encourage them, to motivate them, to instruct them, to exhort them, even to correct them, it's because you know them. It's because you're in relationship with them. It's because you're in a loving, relational way addressing a particular issue because you understand where they are at. 
And maybe their particular plight and where they're at as an individual in their maturity in Christ, you know something about them. But when we don't do this, beloved, and we're not involved in life-on-life discipleship, then we are running around robotically, mechanically, in an abrasive sort of way, confronting people on their sin. And you may have a legitimate reason for doing that, a biblical reason for uh, confronting somebody on their sin, but you're not going to accomplish your purpose if they don't think that you care about them. You understand? So discipleship leads to this kind of relational approach, this relational environment where we know one another, and this ministry of um, loving restoration can flourish and bear fruit in people's lives. And so we must remember that all Christians, all of us who are Christians are the people of church restoration. All of us are. All of us are. Now, on the one hand, as I mentioned, church discipline or better church restoration is an ongoing, organic, natural ministry that's happening amongst us that flows from this life-on-life discipleship issue. But on the other hand, listen... When Christian, a particular Christian refuses to repent of their sin, when lovingly confronted of their sin, then the process becomes progressively formal and structured, doesn't it? And I want us to look at this. Because the whole church becomes involved. The whole church becomes involved in calling somebody to repentance. So what does dealing with conscious, willful, unrepentant sin by another Christian look like in the context of God's church? The third element I want to call your attention to centers around this word process. We must be faithful to the process of church restoration. We must be faithful to the process of church restoration. And to see this process, go with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Our brother Alex read this passage earlier. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Give the specific process for dealing with an unrepentant, professing believer in the church. But oftentimes what we miss is the context that our brother read. Before What comes before verses 15 through 20? Let me read verse 12 again. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. And he asks them in verse 12 of Matthew 18, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is strain? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. And here's Jesus' point. So it is not the will of your Father, God, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones perish. And from the context, back in chapter 18, uh, back in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 18, we know who the little ones are. It is those who humbly are converted like a little child, i.e. believers, followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ. So we're talking here about Brothers or sisters in Christ, aren't we? These little ones that he speaks about. But notice the motivation before getting into the process of pursuing a sinning brother or sister. In verses 15 through 20, the point is, our loving Heavenly Father desires that we would pursue the sinning brother or sister, right? The motivation, in other words, is is love. Love. The other thing that is so obvious that I want you to take note of is that this is Jesus... 
The Lord of the church giving these instructions. The same one who back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, told his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is Christ himself who's going to give his life for his church, giving these particular instructions. See, often people don't stop and really ponder the implications of Jesus being the Lord of the church. People struggle with the issue of church discipline and think it's unloving. It's not something that we should do anymore, not something that we should practice anymore. And they forget about the fact that Jesus himself instructed us to do this. See, we don't struggle on the human level so much with this, do we? If you have a CEO of a company or a president of a company, we expect, even if we don't like it, that that CEO or president of that company sets the rules for that particular company, right? Or what about our own and our own personal lives? You own a home, you own cars, you have property and all of that, you have investments, you're the one that says what goes. Nobody has to argue with you on that. Hey, I earn this money. This is my property. This is my home. These are my cars. I set the rules for how to utilize those things. Why is it different with regards to how Jesus runs his church? Why do we struggle with what Jesus says here as the final word for how we ought to pursue people, professing believers who are living in unrepentant sin, you see? The difference with Christ is that he's perfect in his judgments, isn't he? Different than any CEO or president of a company or we with our possessions. Jesus is blameless. He can absolutely be trusted. He is the ultimate just judge, right? And lawgiver. So we can trust him. We can trust him. So please note, before we look at this process, that the motivation is love. Like a shepherd pursues the one strain sheep. That shapes this process. Love the context is, is the church. He explicitly uh, names the church in verse 17, as we're going to see. And the process is laid out by the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, who's going to go to the, go to the cross after Matthew 18, and he's going to die for his church. He owns her. He sets the parameters. He sets the rules. He sets the pattern for his church. Amen? Christ does that. So what's the process laid out by our loving Savior for restoring a sinning Christian, notice the first step. We'll call it personal, private confrontation. First step is personal, private confrontation. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins, underline the word sins, by the way, go and show him his fault in what? Public? Behind their back? Ask for prayer and then eventually they find out that you have an issue with them because 10, 15 other people told them about it. Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And I love that imagery there of won your brother. It's talking about gaining something of high value that has been, that has been regained, that was lost before. Regaining someone who was lost, highly valuable. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The first step in this ministry of church restoration is personal, private confrontation. And I think at least four things should happen when we go and we talk to somebody. First, before you prepare to go talk to somebody under this first step, you need to pray and spend time before the Lord checking your own heart. It's kind of what Galatians 6 was getting at, right? Check your heart. Are you thinking the best? Is this something that was done intentionally against you or a general sin? 
Is there something that potentially can be overlooked and you can cover it? I think you need to check your heart and really pray before God and answer some of those questions. If you are going to go talk to the person, I think it's important, isn't it, to express our love for them. To express to them our concern for their repentance. Because we want them to be spiritually healthy. Because we genuinely care for them. I think the spirit of Galatians 6, and even this particular passage with the motivation being love, I think drives us to, when we're going to talk to somebody about their sin, to express the fact that we care about them. So oftentimes we just go to the issue, and we don't tell them, hey brother, listen, I, I want you to know that I'm coming to you. I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to gain anything by this. I really genuinely care about you, and that's why I'm addressing this particular thing in your life. Third, tell them what they've done. Tell them what they've done. Listen, be clear about what the issue is. Don't assume that somebody knows what they've done. Sometimes they do, but generally at times they don't. My experience 25% of the time or less or whatever has been that when I have an issue with somebody, at 25% or whatever of the time, they didn't even realize that they had offended me. Brother, I didn't even know. I wasn't even aware that I was doing that. I am so, so sorry. End of issue. Forgiveness extended. Forget about it. We move on. Tell them. Tell them specifically what they've done. And not only tell them, but fourthly, show them from the Word of God how they have violated God's Word. Show them. Show them. Look at verse 15. He says, Go and show, uh, if your brother sins, Sins. That's the, the Greek word hamartia, which basically mean, means missing God's moral standard. That's what sin points to. It's first and foremost sin against God, missing his moral standard, missing his mark. And so why am I highlighting that? That because we should show people how they violated God's word, how they have sinned first and foremost against God, you understand. When we address people, beloved, we need to be careful not to, not to come to people based upon a strong opinion that we hold, and therefore because they don't hold that strong opinion, then they're in sin. Or because um, they don't hold a certain a preference that we have about a particular issue, that they must be in sin. No. Where in the Bible does it say that? Where in the Bible does, does, does God's Word address that particular issue that you're talking to somebody about? Listen to me, you may have strong opinions and even convictions that are well-informed about things like styles of dress, external expressions, uh, external things, things that you wear, the way that you, that you the, uh, particular preferences that you may have. But that doesn't mean that, for example, long hair, it's sinful to have long hair. Where does it say that in the Bible? Nowhere. It doesn't say that. You may have strong preferences or opinions of the, type, the types of entertainment that people should, that Christians should be a part of or expose themselves to. Should they have a TV or not? Should they be on social media or not? Should they watch certain movies or not? Should they listen to certain music or not? You may have very strong opinions, some of them well informed about the issue of entertainment. You may have very strong opinions about dieting and physical health. We have the only organic food people, right? If we could afford it, that'd be great. But organic food is expensive, isn't it? But we have people like that in the church. Heralding organic food. It's only about organic food. McDonald's is of the devil. 
Seriously. Seriously. A few years ago when I was taking one of my boys um, to McDonald's, I, I saw a believer there, a fellow brother in Christ, wonderful brother, but eventually he just got into this long conversation about how feeding my kid chicken nuggets and all of that and the history of chicken nuggets and McDonald's and all of that. How could I possibly feed my kid chicken nuggets? Oh my goodness. You may have opinions about methods of educating your kids. We have the only public school parents, only charter school parents, only homeschool parents, only private school parents. And we cause division with one another. We are indifferent to one another because of those particular methods of education. As a side note, did you know that now we have like the latest thing that's picked up steam in the evangelical Christian church is the, is the pro-vaccine people versus the anti-vaccine Christians in the church. Those who are going to vaccinate their kids, those who are not going to vaccinate their kids. Now we even have Christians, listen to me, contemplating the possibility of, of planting churches based upon one of the high priorities being pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. What in the world are we doing in the church? What are we doing? You know what the problem with this is? The greatest problem is, is that we begin to herald and champion other identity markers in the church above the ultimate identity of union with Christ. That Christ is to be elevated. That Christ is to be exalted. None of these other identity markers or markers of spirituality that some of us have made this out to be in any of these particular issues. That's the problem with a lot of this stuff that we champion. I'm just amazed at how so many Christians sinfully judge one another on matters, albeit very important, some of these things. But they're matters of personal preference, liberty, personal opinion. There's latitude in God's word and the application of certain principles that have to do with those particular issues and many other issues that I didn't mention. Listen to me. There are explicit, clear-cut commands in Scripture about certain things. In other words, thou shalt not do this. Such as, don't lie. Debatable? Yes or no? No. Don't be a deceiver. Don't steal. Debatable? No. Shouldn't be asking, well, what does the Greek say about that? What is the Hebrew word about stealing and lying? Is that really what the intention of the author was? Yes, it was. Don't be a liar. Don't steal. Black and white. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't be practicing fornication. Having sex with somebody not your spouse. And sexual intimacy with somebody who you're not married to. You need to repent of that if that is you. Black and white. Not to be debated. Clear cut. Commands in Scripture. But then listen, there are also then practical matters where there isn't specific chapter and verse about, in other words, thus saith the Lord commence. Where there's liberty and latitude for us to apply ourselves individually and as families and apply those principles in making wise choices. You need to be very careful. So, for instance, our method of educating our children. You know, I've met... Responsible, faithful homeschool parents, responsible, faithful public school parents, responsible, faithful, engaged private school parents, and I have also met irresponsible, unfaithful homeschool parents, 
private school parents, public school parents who are completely disengaged, not training their kids. Listen to me, no matter what the practical method of education that you choose for your kids, what's the biblical mandate for raising your kids? Train them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, right? Teach them obedience. Ultimately, point them to Jesus Christ so that they would give their lives to the one hope that they have, Christ himself. Non-negotiable. We don't debate those things. Methods of education? Give me a chapter and verse where it says that we need to train our kids and that equals private school. And that equals homeschool. Or that equals public school. No chapter and verse whatsoever. And so we need to be very careful not to make that a rule for everybody to follow. Markers of spirituality, markers of identity above Jesus Christ, beloved. On the question of types of entertainment, you ask the question, should I have a TV? Should I have an iPhone? Should I be on social media? Should I listen to particular types of music? What kinds of movies should I watch? There are so many questions that come up around the issue of technology, don't they? Well, let me ask you. What does God, your heavenly Father, want from you more than anything else? That you be Christ-like, right? That you be like Christ. That you be like Jesus. And so the question... The question is not, how close can I get without sinning in any one of these areas? But how Christ-like can I be? And then make a wise decision around those issues. The kind of music that you listen to, the kinds of movies that you watch, the kinds of devices that you carry. So let me tell you, if you are a person, for instance, that struggles with pornography... You're struggling big time with impurity in your life, sexual immorality, thoughts, actions, whatever. It may mean that wisdom tells you that you need to get rid of your iPhone, right? Sever whatever issue is causing you to stumble. It may mean that you shouldn't go watching hardly any movies unless they're like little cartoons, okay? Do whatever you need to do to be like who? Like Christ. Like Christ. That's the issue. How Christ-like can I be? On styles of dress. There's no chapter and verse. Again, thus saith the Lord, this is the style that thou shalt dress like. You, everybody needs to wear a tie in the church like Pastor Kempis. No. What, does, what is Scripture clear about? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? You are not your own. You belong to God. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So with regards to dress and external things that others can see, listen, Christians from the heart should dress appropriately in a way that brings glory to God and expresses love for other people, not causing your brothers and sisters in Christ to struggle because of the way that you are dressing. It's not about rulemaking, is it? It's about love and the name and the glory of Christ and the way that we even dress. I love what John MacArthur said many years ago. True love is most concerned with the purity of its object. True love is most concerned with the purity of its object. That statement tells me that, that my aim should be, if I truly love my brethren, I want to see them be like Christ. I want to see them be like Christ. Because they are my spiritual family, aren't they? 
Well, enough of that. Make sure you are confronting someone is the point on sin, right? On clear biblical violation and not on issues that may fall under the realm of wisdom issues, preferences, even liberty issues, right? Some of those things may require that we need to get to know one another, understand people's life situations so that they make wise choices and decisions in various aspects of their life. And it could be that even on those wisdom issues, you might be called to counsel somebody and say, you know what, it is probably wise for you not to have that device anymore. I'm not telling you that the Bible says thou shalt not have an iPhone, but giving your particular situation, knowing you and because I love you and I care about you, it is probably wise for you not to be watching movies like that anymore because it's not leading you to be like Jesus, right? That's where discipleship comes in. Mature believers coming alongside of others, even in these issues that are wisdom issues to give counsel, godly counsel. Notice also in this first step, as I mentioned, it's personal and private, isn't it? It's personal and private. That means, beloved, that gossip is not allowed. Slander is not allowed. Some people are very indiscreet about this, even shameless about this. People struggle with a loose tongue where eventually everybody knows about the issue that your sin, and then you wonder who in the world told them, and eventually the person makes them over to you, but they've already told everybody and their grandma about it, right? Some people spiritualize gossip. Make it it's more subtle. You might put it this way. You know, I was just seeking counsel from that other person. I was just bouncing the issue off of somebody else who is more wise than me. And you know what? That is allowable, isn't it? We don't know everything. So part of discipleship in the church is that we would have the freedom to be able to go to others if we need guidance, how to address the issue. Am I I making this too much of a big issue? So we need the counsel of other people. But listen, the problem becomes when we run around bouncing things off of people and we never go to the person with whom we have an issue against. Or we ask for prayer from every small group in the church. And eventually it gets around to the person. Everybody's praying for your sin, but the person who has the sin, who has the problem against you, never came to you. We need to be careful with gossip in the church under this first step, don't we? I would also say that if you're the recipient of information about somebody, a sin issue in somebody's life, listen, encourage that person who talked to you about having this issue with somebody else, encourage them and even follow up and make sure that they talk to that person about the issue, right? Follow up with them. That's what being a a church family is about. We care for one another, don't we? But there's reconciliation between our two brethren. Now, most issues are normally resolved here. Forgiveness is granted. Don't repeat the matter anymore. Don't lord it over them. Move on. Notice the end of verse 15. If they listen to you, you have won your brother. You have won your brother. But if they don't repent, there's a second step in verse 16. Notice, we'll call this small group confrontation. Small group confrontation, verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That last part appears in caps because it's a quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. What are those witnesses there to do? Are those witnesses there to intimidate? To gang up on the sinning Christian? To Bible thump or spiritually pummel them? No. 
They are there to confirm the facts. But also, listen to me, this second step is also for the protection of the sinning Christian. Because now, what do you have? Extra eyes and ears to discern the issues that are at hand, right? You can answer questions like, has the Christian truly sinned? Or is this a personal preference that the accuser has? Or is this legitimate biblical sin? Is this person still unrepentant? Or they have, they already asked for forgiveness and this one accuser won't let it go, won't forgive? Do they still want to live in sin? So these witnesses are there for these reasons. And above all, they're there to plead with the sinning brother or sister in Christ, right? They're there to plead, to turn from their sin if it's a biblical issue. If they repent, what happens? Forgiveness granted. Debt is released fully. Don't repeat the matter. Praise the Lord together. Move on. Amen? Second step. Now, if they don't repent, a third step in verse 17. We'll call it church confrontation. Church confrontation. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Stop right there. This is public communication with the assembly of God, the church. Now, pay close attention to this. There is a great time gap here, isn't it? Isn't there? In this particular statement, tell it to the church. That's why this third step is best carried out by the elders who've been looped into the situation by this point. And listen, only after an extended period of time, best defined by the shepherds of the church, after much prayer, after much discussion, once unrepentant sin has been confirmed, then the elders pull the trigger on public communication with the rest of the church family. A lot of prayer and patience is exercised here. And I can tell you that there's a lot of grieving that is taking place. And tears in elders' meetings because of the unrepentant, sinning Christian. There have been a couple of occasions in the past, in my experience here, where the elders have taken so long that even the sheep begin to say, we need to pull the trigger on this, and everybody needs to know about what's going on. And the elders will drag our feet because we want to confirm and make sure that we give ample opportunity for the unrepentant Christian to deal with their sin. We don't just pull the trigger. Because we want to put somebody in their place. And if and when we tell it to the church, what do we do? What are we communicating with you? A, we tell you who the person is. Who the sinning Christian is, the member is. We tell you what the specific sin was. We tell you what's been done to pursue and plead with the brother or sister. What efforts have been made to pursue their repentance. And finally, we tell you what you need to do. What you need to do. And that's summed up in three primary things. Pray, beg, fear. Pray, beg or plead, and fear. Pray for them. God needs to change their hearts, right? Only God can do that through his, the conviction of His Word. Also, beg them to repent of their sin. Call them. Meet with them. Email them. Text them. And that's not to harsh, uh, harshly harass people, but to, but to plead with them out of a heart of love for them because you want them to glorify Christ with their life because you don't want them to harm themselves and to destroy their lives and the lives of other people around them. So you plead, you beg, and you fear. Galatians 6, look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's a caution for us, isn't it? When a Christian 
is living in unrepentant sin. The safeguard for us. Finally, if they don't repent, there's the fourth step. And we'll call it corporate excommunication. Corporate excommunication. Look at the middle of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And there's this prolonged period of time. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. What's that all about? A Gentile was considered a heathen, a pagan idol worshiper. A tax collector was a Jew who worked for the Romans, collecting extra taxes from his own Jewish people. They would collect what was required by the Romans, and then they would collect extra from their Jewish um, uh, comrades and pilfer some of the money for themselves. They were thieves, these, these tax collectors. Thus, they were hated by the Jews. They were considered traitors, despised, and treated as outcasts. And so listen to me, to treat as a Gentile and a tax collector meant to ostracize, to remove, to exclude, to reject an unrepentant professing Christian from the fellowship. To cut them off from experiencing the the beautiful, loving, gracious, good benefits of fellowship in the church. Because if you just allow them to continue as they are, they never feel the sting of a loss of fellowship with the brethren. And so sin is undermined. It's diminished, the seriousness of it. This is not the only text where we are told to do this. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, here it is, that you keep away from every, listen, brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Please note, we're not talking about the world non-believers. We're talking about so-called brothers or sisters who won't, after repeated efforts, turn away from their sin that is harming them, harming other people, and shaming the name of Christ. Keep away from them. Oh, this is so countercultural, isn't it? So countercultural. But it's to be different in the church, beloved. We saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 how Paul tells the church to remove a wicked professing Christian, listen, who is sleeping with his stepmom and won't repent. Won't repent. He's in sin. He's hurting himself, hurting his family, hurting the church at Corinth, ultimately spitting upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died for sins like that to deliver that person from those sins. And he won't repent. But what did our culture say about that? Oh, Pastor Kempis, you know, it's rough today. There's so much temptation out there. You know, times have changed. Don't be so hard on the poor guy. You know what? He's probably, has a, he's probably addicted to sex and he cannot let go of that. There's no way that he could overcome that. Or listen, be nice. Don't be so narrow-minded. Don't be so judgmental. Who are we to judge if they love one another? Why why can all three of them become a happy family then? You can see our culture, right? No standards. Relativism. Truth is relative. Truth is defined by how I feel, not based upon the objective truth of the Word of God. What does Paul say? Or God through the Apostle Paul, they are destroying themselves. 
remove him. Maybe he will wake up. And if they're not a Christian, maybe they will become a Christian. This is really hard stuff, right? Hard stuff. But Jesus says, these are my loving instructions for the professing believer, the wandering sheep living in unrepentant sin. Why? To shame them? to humiliate them, to ruin their reputation so that everybody runs around gossiping about them? Absolutely not. And if that happens amongst us with somebody in this situation, we need to shut it down right away. Amen? We shut it down. The reason why Jesus wants us to follow this is to get their attention for their good, the good of the church, and above all, the glory of His great name. That's why He wants us to deal with this. I realize it's hard, heavy stuff. And some of you have even been in situations where you've, maybe in other churches or this church, have experienced some of this. Listen, we need to grieve together. We need to be praying together. If you grab the the church prayer sheet, you will see that one of the first prayer requests and the general prayer requests for the body are those whom we have church disciplined. We're still praying for them. They're still in our hearts. And it should be in all of our hearts. We should be praying and coming alongside of their families because that hurts, doesn't it? And a family, a church family, doesn't just kind of, well, as long as it's not us, we're good. No, family doesn't think that way. Family prays for one another, bears burdens, comes along others who are experiencing devastating things. We bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is heavy stuff. And our Lord knows this. So our fourth element is very important as we wrap up here. Fourth. Centers around the word power. We must take comfort in the power behind church restoration. We must take comfort in the power behind church restoration. Listen, when we administer church restoration in a biblical and loving manner for the glory of God, the good of the church, and the good of the Christian in sin, we can find great encouragement in that God is in on this, right? Look at Matthew 18 and verse 18. Truly, I say to you, beyond the shadow of a doubt, I say this to you, says Jesus. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And that last part of verse 20 is not talking about that when multiple people gather together to pray, God is there amongst them. That's true, but that is not what this text is talking about. These words must be understood in context. Jesus has been talking about the issue of church restoration, right? And so essentially, this is what he's saying. If you follow what I've said, my word, heaven is behind you. The highest courtroom is behind the church's verdict and decision. As difficult and as painful as this process is, beloved, we take great comfort in that, don't we? That when we are faithful to follow God's word and deal in truth and in love with somebody who is living in sin, God in heaven approves. 
Boy, as a, an elder, I take great comfort in that. And I also take it very seriously that we follow the pattern of the Word of God if we really want God to honor that process, right? We must be faithful to what Jesus has said because that's the key. We must do it according to God's Word and in love. Truth and love are what Calvary wants to be about. Amen? Truth and love, who is the ultimate supreme example of uh, the the God-man who uh, even in his humanity here on this earth in his public ministry, three and a half years, lived and treated people with the truth and in love. Christ. Christ himself did that. We want to be Christ-like in this process as well. This is so important, isn't it? So, so important. Sin is real in the church. None of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. Our expectation should be that each of us will have struggles with sin. And our response, beloved, should be to love one another as a spiritual family by practicing church restoration. Why? So that we become like Christ together. So that we become like Christ and glorify Him. And so don't ever forget... Loving restoration is not the invention of men, but Christ, the Lord of the church. Church restoration is not an act of sinful vindictiveness, but one of pastoral care from the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is not an act of hateful humiliation against someone. What is it? A process of loving restoration for the glory of Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the great reality that in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have restored sinners such as us to yourself by faith. Thank you that the gospel is about restoration, restoration to a right relationship with you, our creator. And Father, we pray that we would show that, that we would manifest that in the way that we interact with one another that as recipients of your grace, that we would practice transforming grace in our relationships with one another. That we would be loving and committed to the truth enough and committed to the good and the benefit of our fellow brothers and sisters to humbly address their sin and also be teachable to have others address our sin as well, that we would become more and more like Christ. Father, help us to do this By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.